Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to use them to grow your business. My name is Manny Charan, and off today is Adam. We do have a special guest, Luis Fernandez, who is going to introduce himself. I wanted to bring Luis here on board to talk about what's happening in his industry and get a boots on the ground understanding of what's happening with respect to trends and how um, his industry, I'll let him kind of talk about it in a bit. Can, can really show the rest of us kind of where things are going with the economy. So welcome to the show, Lewis. Thanks, Manny. Appreciate it, man. Thanks right. for having me. Give us a little bit of a, about your background and what industry you're in. Uh, sure. So uh, I'm a former Army officer, got out after about uh, seven years in the Army and um, went to work for John Deere for some time um, and then uh, worked for Caterpillar for some time. And now... I'm an independent consultant, um, working a lot with heavy equipment companies, uh, helping them with their operational excellence stuff. And I've worked um, in uh, and around pretty much all of the different industries from oil and gas and mining, construction, uh, commercial mowing, agriculture, um, and, and seeing, you know, the, the businesses that require us to move dirt and use the land uh, to generate money. Oh. Yeah, it's very interesting. So we, you know, we talk to a lot of different people all across the the industries, whether it's in AI or the gig economy. You know, we talk about these pretty major trends that are happening right now. And having your perspective is interesting because we don't think about how much is really required in our daily life in order to uh, to have. You know, we talk about AI, but if you're going to have AI, you've got to have these big server farms. And if you're going to build server server farms, you got to build the build the structure. So, what do you, what is your take on how important the heavy industry is to to our nation's economy? Um, honestly, I, I think it's something that uh, is always going to be there, and we're going to, um, which is kind of what we're seeing now, is that we're going to impose limits on ourselves, and and we find new ways of maximizing the resources that exist. So let me explain what I what I okay. mean there. Um, so let's talk about just like uh, oil drilling. Um, a century ago, how we extracted oil uh, and what we were able to extract, very different than today. Um, and we have been able to go back into locations that um, maybe we couldn't access those resources before and access them now. Okay. Uh, we're also finding <clears throat> new resources that we didn't know we're important, right? As we move into this EV world with changing how we make batteries and um, the need for a better battery system, all these different metals and, and different equipment um, becomes important to the overall economy, whereas before it wasn't. I think um, Alabama's one recently, they found a source of, uh, I don't want to say the wrong metal, but they, there's a new source of metal that's important with the, yeah. with the, uh, the EV batteries that they found. There And so the restrictions that I mean that we pose upon ourselves um, is around a, being good stewards of the environment. So uh, there's a lot more focus, um, even in the last 20 years, in making sure that whatever we do, whatever we mine, whatever we extract from the earth, um, that we don't leave a, you know, a damaging, long lasting footprint into the future. Uh, and that it's, you know, extracted in the, in the most, uh, environmentally friendly way possible. 
Yeah, so we've talked about the the idea of this ESG, environmental, social, and governance kind of investor or people that are uh, investing, if you will, with their dollars, right? They're, they're going for company A over company B because company A is a better steward of the environment. And so that's very interesting to kind of bring that up. Not a lot of people really understand that, but I think you are showing us now that uh, that's a that's a big important piece of the of the puzzle. Absolutely critical, and you know when we think about just everyday operations, there are a lot of chemicals that go into what we do, um, both in the machines and then in use in the ground to access resources, uh, <clears throat> and those have to be very tightly controlled you know, the, the uh, protection of the groundwater systems and even the surface, you know, you have a spill uh, requirements are, you know, immediate stoppage uh, to, to clean up those spills um, and do so properly and, and mitigate all that. So uh, being stewards of the environment, it's, <laughs> I know a lot of folks will say, well, oh, companies don't really care. Um, and I'm sure there's evidence for some of that, but in general, you know, from what I see on the day-to-day -day and on the ground, um, being good environmental stewards. And many of the people that are working in those fields live in that area too. So, you know, it's, uh, um, they want to protect their backyard, but also recognize like, you know, here's this resource uh, that we have that's unique and necessary um, and gives us an opportunity to generate wealth in our communities. Sure. So we talk about uh, a lot of trends here on our podcast. It's kind of the cornerstone, the Business Trendsetter podcast, of course. And uh, I'll kind of, I have a question regarding, so we've got demographics is one of the big ones. We've got AI, we've got the gig economy, we have mobility, and we have asynchronous life or being able to communicate and do business, not at the same time. Of those five, and I guess this, the sixth one is kind of the wild card as well, it was the whole idea of the environmental concern. Do you think that your industry is the one you touched on, ag, mining, all those, how have you seen them change in the in the past, we'll say five years, with respect to the just the six uh, trends I just listed here? Um, <clears throat> so I'll tell you, a lot of the impositions around focuses uh, and, and needing operational efficiencies are uh, typically from a regulation standpoint. Um, so we could very cheaply extract a lot of this stuff and leave a mess behind. And so there's a lot of government impositions on regulations and penalties and the like that uh, kind of lower those margins that are already tight, right? And then they're gonna make those margins tighter. Um, and so a lot of focus on how do we reduce those costs, which brings in particularly um, automation and uh, predictive uh, behaviors, right? So. I can access a lot of information from how a machine is running in the field. Um, some of it, it we, we may notice micro changes uh, in something that will tell us that based on the past, if we see this sort of, um, this vibration in this particular system happen inside of this wavelength and inside of this time, that is an indication that it's going to fail within the next hundred hours or something. What we're running into, this is great because we want to get to a place where we're predictive about when our machines are going to fail and predictive about our maintenance. 
Um, but there's so much data, especially if you start thinking about, you know, here in our backyard, you've got somebody like Freeport, right? They've got thousands and thousands of machines out there running and you have hundreds of data points per, it's impossible to put an eyeball on it, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have some sort of automation to do some preliminary analysis, to throw up those red flags to say, hey, here's an alert, here's a potential problem, here's a place you need to go looking um, and you need to examine this, this, this location. Um, a, so that is like a, one of the first implementations that I see happening today um, in, in the automated space. And then there's, there's attempts at uh, automating the, the execution of the work itself, you know, with the automated mining trucks and the like, I've seen some of that. Um, I, I'm a little more skeptical about where we are in our ability to automate and use, you know, this AI systems to replace human operators. Um, because, you know, the output is only as good as the input and it's, a, it's really hard for us to predict when we're writing these programs, you know, what something should be looking for and, and how to, you know, enact behaviors based on that. Um, I think maybe eventually we can get there today. I'm a little more cautious, especially with, um, you know, our heavy equipment is not forgiving and one mistake will cost you your life. Yeah. Um, and so, and I understand the safety benefits. There, there's a lot, like somebody that would disagree with me would come in here and give you all the reasons for it. And I could say, yeah, those are valid. Um, I'm still a little bit more cautious and we're probably just uh, in general, right? Um, yeah. But we can see the integration of both. For instance, you go to a manufacturing facility and you'll see weld robots working alongside welders, right? Um, and these people kind of work with the machine and using the machine. I, I see that certainly uh, in the closer near future. Um, than, you know, these fully automated uh, machines. Uh, but it's certainly something that this industry is looking to find as, um, you know, ways to maximize efficiency. What can we automate? How do we automate some tasks? Right. And how do we reduce um, those overhead requirements and predictive more about our failures? That's interesting. So my 17-year-old my, uh, son is interested in p potentially going into mining engineering as a career. So I had a, uh, a buddy of mine who's a 35, 40 year veteran in the, in the industry, actually a electrical engineer, but he went into mining and we had lunch the other day. I'm doing my best to steward my son in the, in a good direction. I mean, he'll be fine either way. But, uh, one thing the guy said, it was very interesting that I kind of knew, but it was crystal clear after he said it, he says, you know, the mining industry is extremely eager and anxious to try out new technologies uh solar you know they're putting these these solar panels out you know they try them out in these crazy fields in the middle of nowhere uh drones autonomous vehicles blah 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 batteries i mean they're they're always the first to try stuff out but they are, but they are the slowest to actually make them making them as a um a de facto standard is what he said. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, we'll try everything out really quick. We'll be the first in line to try something out, but we'll be the last in line to make it a, an official thing that everybody else does in the in in our in our industry. Do you see that? Uh, that's interesting. I think a lot of that becomes very difficult. Okay. 
a lot of that I think is dependent on the companies that are doing them. And then as I said that, I was also thinking that some company, like based on the size of a company, you're going to see a slower implementation. All right. So some of clients like working with John Deere, implementing something new uh, is going to take a very long time. It is a very big ship to turn. Um, and then I have some other smaller clients where, you know, a year ago, I told them, hey, you should have a centralized system where you're gathering all this data and put your, you know, engineers and mechanics in the same room um, and have all of these sets of information collecting and then making decisions out of this one room. And, you know, eight, nine months later, it's implemented. Right. Um, and so the experience may be if you're coming from a large organization that, hey, we're, we're really down for trying new technologies, but we're really slow to implement them. I think that may have more to do with the size of the company than the nature right. of the business. So let's talk about a little bit of your experience with, uh, you know, we talk about uh, value and value delivery. You know, value is the, is what are this, what is the customer client gaining from the experience? And, and then the value delivery is how do you actually take what your value is and give it to the client or give it to the customer? So it seems like your background is pretty heavily on the value delivery with operational excellence, right? You're, you're taking something, how do you make it better? So give us a framework of what, of what operational excellence means to you. And then I'll kind of come in with a couple of questions regarding that. <clears throat> so in the heavy equipment space, one of the things that I see very regularly is, um, uh, one is it's definitely a good old boy, right? Uh, grandpa did this business and dad did this business and I do this business. Um, you know, and there's the mineral rights folks and, you know, all of this kind of like, <clears throat> it's certainly a family business. And so the, and many of the people that are running these businesses also ran the equipment at one point. Um, we, my clients typically, you know, they have always worn boots and they need a shower when they get home from work every day. Like it's not an option, right? So uh, if you think about like this, this type of, even though they're, you know, making seven figures and above a, a year, right? Uh, they get dirty. They don't, you know, they wear jeans, right? Like this is the kind of, uh, but with that, um, there's a, there's a, <laughs> uh, a stereotype in there as well that, um, the, the ideas of, of lean and all of this stuff, like we will, we will solve the problems when they present themselves. Okay. And when you're talking about a 2 million or $3 million piece of equipment, that's a very expensive problem. And when that equipment isn't running, it's to the tune of thousands of dollars an hour that you're losing because that piece of equipment isn't running. So, um, Many of our systems are what I call like this break fix. When something breaks, we fix it. And that's how we, we move along. Uh, that type of fleet management means that your costs to run your fleet, they're going to be erratic. You don't have a lot of control. Um, it's going to be more expensive and less predictable. Um, so you'd never know, like every day you're going out and you're rolling the dice which of my pieces of equipment are going to fail today, right? And I help people move from that model to a predictive one where we know based on how we maintain our equipment and the like, 
when this equipment needs to come down before it breaks and we can plan for it and we can plan our maintenance around it. So, um, you know, this is the, uh, fix it faster when it's back. So when we take a piece of equipment down, we want to make sure our maintenance operations are coordinated. They're organized. They have the parts they need. They have the tools they need. The mechanic understands the repair and they do it right the first time. Uh, and we get the equipment back out faster. And then we also want to break it smaller and slower. Um, so when a failure happens that they're not catastrophic, uh, that they're controlled, that we, you know, every piece of equipment is going to fail. That's, it's impossible, uh, that it doesn't, it's the way that these are designed, right? And it would, no one would expect to still be running a computer from 1999. Like you understand the life cycle of all of the things that we own. There's a time when they go down. The only problem is that some folks are spending 3 million bucks and they're running at 20 hours a day. And so you spend $3 million and you got to replace it every three years. Uh, that's hard to stomach, right? So how do we make it last longer um, and, and, you know, break smaller, control it, move into that predictive maintenance, control those costs, understand what they are. Uh, and so that is really a large place uh, where I focus a lot of my energy and it generates, you know, tens of millions of dollars for even some of the smaller clients as well, uh, being able to do that. I see that. You know, you mentioned a couple of things in your in your talk here a bit that one of the things that we also talk about at Spark Partners is the idea of removing bias. And, you know, bias is a bitch, right? It can bite you in the butt. It can create lots of it, a havoc. And we also talk about this idea of um, uh, you, uh, this thing called lock-in, which is you buy this $3 million piece of equipment. Now you're locked into it. Uh, and, and if th things shift and change to a new direction, or maybe mining is, is done differently now, and your, your equipment is an old way of doing the mining, you're kind of locked into that. So it's really good that you kind of talked about those different areas. Would you, uh, as, as far as in, in your understanding, the predictive maintenance framework, taking data, taking, you know, doing what you do in the predictive, predictive maintenance framework, wouldn't you consider that kind of a form of artificial intelligence? Oh, definitely. And we implement some of it um, in, in some of these, uh, you know, like when I was talking about um, identifying a trend, right? So let's say, um, you know, I want to keep my engine temperature above a certain number. Um, if I alert when it drops below that, it may be too late. Um, and then if I raise my temperature threshold, it may be too early, right? And so we create these, these AI models that will look at and say, okay, what does this equipment normally operate in? Um, and what trends are we seeing in this equipment to then raise that red flag and tell, you know, these mechanics. So I'm taking these, um, you know, usually my recommendation is take a very senior seasoned mechanic, the kind of guy who's been doing the job so long that climbing up on the machine kind of hurts his knees. And he's thinking about like, I need to be somewhere else, but his knowledge base is so much that you don't want to lose that. And I put them behind a computer screen and I say, Hey, this machine is going to tell you when to go look at something. And then I need you to go look at that machine and tell me what the problem is before it gets bad. Right. Uh, and so this is the, the idea of the, the robotic welder, right? The robots doing the, the line share of the work and the guy is there to make sure that it's still working. Right. Uh, and doing the appropriate task. And that's kind of how, you know, right now, this is today how we implement AI in the future. I think a lot of that becomes 
where um, we're using it to, to understand the failure mode when the machine is being repaired. Um, so some of it may be, you know, there's situations where you could say, uh, and I don't want to get like too technical in the, in the repair side, right? So um, a, there's this thing called blow-by that happens with diesel engines where you, you're getting an escape of gases that you shouldn't, you get pressures that are higher and you start shooting oil out of the exhaust, right? Um, and eventually, if you never take care of it, the engine could run away on you, your oil becomes a fuel source, it revs really high RPMs and then it explodes. So eventually it can be a long, a long term, it can be a big problem. Um, it, but there's a lot of different causes and contributors and all of this stuff. So if, what I see probably within the next five to 10 years <clears throat> is a machine coming in for a repair and you hooking up an AI model to tell you like, hey, here's the problem and here's the steps that you need to take to fix it. Go undo these bolts and go order these parts and doing, you know, kind of a lot of that analysis for you. Um, so you're getting it right the first time, uh, instead of, you know, some of the stuff that we have to do, which is very troubleshooting heavy. Um, so helping mechanics with that troubleshoot piece, getting the, the instructions, uh, for the repair in front of the guy, maybe even some of those glasses that say, you know, like that's the bolt you need to take apart next kind of thing. Um, so I'd say that's probably like five to 10 years from now. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, Tell us a little bit about the human element. Uh, you know, you said the uh, robotic welder working next to the welder, you know, these things kind of side by side. How would you imagine uh, things from uh, the, mar we'll say the market adoption side. Are these folks eager for this technology? Are these, these things you mentioned, the AI models and all that, or are they resistant? Because we, you know, part of what we do here is we help companies understand like, where are things moving towards? Wayne Gretzky was, was an, an average skater, an average shooter, but the most brilliant, had the most brilliant ability to, to know where things were happening, right? I'm skating to where the puck is going. Uh, and so what kind of pushback are, you, are these guys, um, you know, presenting? Um, oh, man, it, it's a bit of a mixed bag. But um, the companies that are willing to do it, are going to be the ones that survive. We're seeing a lot of um, a consolidation, right? So running, buying, this is such a capital intensive um, industry in, in all of them. Um, you, you know, the, the barriers to entry are high. Running the equipment is expensive. It dies, you know, early, depending on, you know, how good you are, uh, at managing it. it could be, you know, um, but the, the companies that are willing to have these conversations, make these adoptions, um, and you know, on, on the upturn are willing to say, okay, we need to continue to improve on the upturn. Um, they're the ones that are gobbling up the competition on the downturn and buying companies based on the value of assets, right? Uh, and you're seeing that um, kind of across the board. If you look at, you know, there was huge merger down in Australia um, recently. There's been a few for fracking companies. Like we're seeing a lot of this consolidation happening uh, in the heavy equipment space of these different companies. And the ones that are winning uh, and buying up the competition 
uh, are the ones that, you know, are having more conversations with consultants like me uh, and bringing in, you know, technology and focusing on operational excellence piece. Interesting. You know, it's a matter of survival. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of companies are in uh, a bit of the deer, the headlights sometimes when it comes to new technology, AI, there's a, a lot of fear going around about AI in particular. I mean, it's, it's been in the news all the time where people don't want to do anything because they're afraid that the, these AI models are going to get out of control and end up taking us over like the Terminator series, <laughs> Skynet. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit ridiculous, but you know what? There, people are going to act on. You know, you said earlier the good old boys. Um, you know, one interesting model that uh, that we talk about a lot is, you know, yeah, if you if your grandfather started the company and you you do not want to go in a different direction because that's the way that grandpa did it, you're going to end up being buried next to grandpa, right? You're gonna. Mm -hmm. you know, grandpa himself was a trendsetter back in his day because he did something different. Exactly. And people don't realize that. I mean, in particular in family exactly. business. Yes, exactly. No, that, that's that, exactly right. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you see it a lot. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the uh, demographics on where these machines are being deployed. I mean, certainly mines are, are going to be where mines are, but with respect to um, building houses, building factories, building things of that nature. Uh, even, you know, do you have a sense of where things are happening from your side? Um, well, you can, uh, uh, oh man, I got ahead of myself in my thoughts. Right. So let's start with why they're happening and then where they're happening. How's okay. that? So uh, on the why side, uh, a lot of this post COVID um, infrastructure investment piece um, so you saw this, this uh, artificial demand drop during COVID. Um, after the pandemic, uh, you get this release of uh, new demand, which, you know, uh, overtakes the supply capability, driving prices up. We've got this inflation issue. And governments globally respond with um, Dozens of infrastructure projects we see, um, you know, the housing getting out of control. And so there's a lot of like uh, focus on increasing supply of, of housing. So really globally, there is a construction boom happening um, in and let me give the caveat here in many of the first world economies. Right. Uh, there are certainly places where that's not happening. And, you know, there's lots of warfare in the Eastern Europe. Uh, Western Asia uh, front going on, right? But generally around the world, this is what we're seeing. Um, so where is it happening? I guess I kind of gave a little bit on the on the where. You could pull up a map, like if you wanted to know the U.S. wise, um, it's happening to uh, where people are moving, which is kind of interesting. You could almost like there's a map where you can look and see, um, you know, plus and minus. The only problem is that the latest one I saw was county wise. Uh, you know, counties where they're seeing a plus in population and counties where they're seeing a minus in population. Um, that doesn't mean that anywhere inside of that county space is a good place to invest, right? Uh, it's highly localized, particularly when it comes to construction. Um, I mean, even within a city, right? Uh, <clears throat> you could see a difference just in our, you know, little town of Tucson 
uh, where we're going to see a lot more of our construction and, and you know, uh, industry growth and the like. And we know that, you know, from what we're seeing, a lot of this, this northern Tucson off the I-10 corridor and between I-10 and Phoenix is becoming kind of like the next frontier of, uh, you know, construction growth. And, and I think there's probably a multitude of reasons uh, for that that we're seeing. Um, so, so much of it is very local. Uh, and it's hard to say, you know, one over another, but a lot of uh, communities are facing similar problems right now, uh, like I said, globally. And so you're seeing this construction boom all over the place. That's, that's interesting. And uh, I, I know you've done a lot more uh, besides being in the construction, mining, heavy equipment, ag space. I know you've done a lot of supporting companies and looking at uh, saving them money. And, and, you know, where, where are these, these leaks happening and all that? Give us a, a little bit of a context of that, and then I've got a few questions, and then we'll wrap up. Uh, yeah, so, um, <clears throat> you know, I find that um, we, we sometimes forget how impactful pulling from the middle of the P&L uh, drives the, an increase to the bottom line of that profit loss statement. So we want, we know that you have to have that top line sales revenue um, and we want to grow and increase our sales. And that's usually where folks will call in assistance to grow their top line. If your margins are, you know, 10%, right? If you are able to pull from the middle and move that margin line up one or 2%, um, that's, the equivalent, you know, of 10x of that sales, right? So it's much easier if we can find um, that that small, you know, revenue increase bump by being more um, lean in our operations by uh, reducing the amount of space that we need to do whatever it is or making our employees more productive. All of these things, reducing those individual costs to, to generate that $1 of revenue, we see it faster on the bottom line and it's much more in our control than that top line uh, revenue piece. Um, and so my business, my LLC is called expense line profits for that reason, right? So where do we find the profits in the expense line? Um, and finding those, you know, when you're in a growth stage, sometimes we make decisions um, quickly because we have to, and we make a fast decision to get us to the next position. Uh, and that decision we made yesterday was not the least expensive one. And so having someone come in, you know, when, when I go into a business, I don't have any HR issues to worry about. I'm not under the stress of delivery of anything. Um, and I can take the time and think about the problem without all of those stresses and sit down with an employee and watch them work for eight hours. I can do that. What leader has the time to sit for an entire day and just watch somebody work, right? Um, and so that's where we find these these middle lines. Hey, right here, you know, and um, like I said, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, and, you know, one company we generated, they were cash flow negative. Uh, and we generated all of their cash flow uh, for the last year. It was like a 30% swing to their bottom line um, just from being able to do that. That's very, very interesting, um, Lewis. You know, we we talk a lot about the the trends, the uh, value um, side of the equation, 
the revenue side of the equation. So it's a, it's a nice breath of fresh air sometimes to, to talk about the other pieces that are important. I mean, if you're, if you're in an industry, if your stuff is not selling because nobody wants to buy it, no amount of pulling from the middle is going to help. I mean, everybody recognizes that, but on the flip side, I think sometimes people focus too much on the middle and, and, or, or even the bottom line and don't worry about, Hey, where's the next uh, lily pad we're going to jump to. So it's been a really nice conversation with you, Lewis. I think uh, we really appreciate your time. Uh, tell our audience how they can get a hold of you if they have any questions or thoughts. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Lewis J. Fernandez. Uh, and my website is Lewis, L O U I S J Fernandez.com. Um, so, yeah. All right. Well, very good, Lewis. Thanks for your time. And to our listeners, uh, we'll have a couple more podcasts here before Adam returns. And with that, have a rest, a uh, good rest of the day. Cheers. Thanks, sir.